Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's message was given by guest preacher Carl K.J. Johnson, director of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Chicago. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. This is found in the New Testament section of our Bibles. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Great God of the whole universe, and the God who remarkably also saves and cares for each of us individually, Thank you for this chance to hear and be directed by your word. At a time when wars and rumors of wars have taken an overt form, at a time when lies and information propagate so freely, thank you for giving us your true word in the Bible. Please give our guest pastor the courage and skill that he needs to deliver your word for our daily lives as your people. Amen. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, Give each of us your daily bread, our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us into the time of trial. And then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight, and you say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And your friend answers from within, Do not bother me. The door is already locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him what he needs. So I say to you, said Jesus, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Uh, congratulations on the uh, baptisms and the new members. What a great morning to be here and join you. Thanks, Pastor Ray, for inviting me to come this morning. Um, it's a privilege I, I don't take lightly, uh, being invited into um, the pulpit. There are some places that uh, aren't as welcoming, and I'm always uh, honored when I'm invited to come speak. 
It's also a topic I don't take lightly either. Um, since we're on prayer, I thought it was appropriate to invite some people to pray for me this morning uh, so that I have a, a message for you. And one of the people I asked is someone that I think many of you may remember, know, love, and, and miss, uh, Ray Carmichael, who was telling Pastor Ray this morning. And what I didn't tell you was he impressed upon me when I told him what the topic was. He said, oh my, he's given you a topic that's so close to his heart, something that's personal. And so I don't take this, this opportunity lightly. I'm really excited to speak to you because uh, like you, prayer is a very important topic to me. And I think um, like Oswald Chambers once said, prayer is not preparation for the work. Prayer is the work. So thank you for trusting me with this this morning. Let me also express my gratitude to all of you, um, not just for inviting me in this morning, but for the hospitality that I've experienced over the years here. Um, uh, I'm always excited when I get a chance to do something with First Presbyterian Church of Evanston because, uh, I, one, I love this place. I always forget how beautiful the, the sanctuary is when I came here. But um, Ray Carmichael used to be on my board of directors. He was the chair of my board. And we actually partnered back in, I think it was a 2016 election season. We did an event here called The Political Disciple, an open forum. And so I'm just happy to partner with the church. We've had Pastor Ray come and teach in our uh, C.S. Lewis Fellows Discipleship Program. So glad to hear you highlight discipleship this morning. What a wonderful definition. So this symbiotic loving relationship between us and the church, I just am excited to be here with you this morning. Um, I have a few minutes to cover a, a well-known passage. This passage from, from Luke has been covered by scholars and pastors and theologians over and over, and there's no way that I'm going to be able to plumb the depths of it this morning. But um, I think I've got a few things that I can share with you that God has put in my heart. I also found it providential, Pastor Ray, that you gave this to me because in 2017, one of my seminary professors, John Woodbridge, actually sort of informally assigned this passage to me as I embarked on a new phase of ministry. And so I've been chewing on this passage for probably about nearly five years. And so I, I just thought all of these things lining up, it was, it was perfect. So. Uh, I think God definitely put this on your heart. Um, so I know you've been going through a series on prayer and, and the face of God. I know that you've been given this Acts format to, to pray. I wanted to take a, little, uh, a look and see a little bit of what the teachings covered. I know that you've added the L to the Acts format, which I, I, I'm excited to hear because J.I. Packer reminds us that prayer is two-way communication. Or as a, a friend of mine, Pastor Stuart McAlpine said, People who don't hear much from God don't pray much. So you definitely need to have that listening component. And in today's society, we don't do very much listening, do we? There's a lot of talking past each other, uh, and I think we, we do that with God quite a bit. So bearing in mind that you've covered significant ground already, um, I'm just going to endeavor to highlight a couple things from this passage that uh, I think we often skip over, because this is such a familiar passage, isn't it? We've heard these kinds of passages over and over, and then we hear oftentimes the same message on it over and over. So I'm hoping to maybe come at it from a slightly different angle this morning. In the opening lines of his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer, J.I. Packer states this, Praying to God is a problem for many today. Some go through the motions with no idea why. Some have exchanged prayer for quiet thought or transcendental meditation. Most, perhaps, 
have given up prayer entirely. Why this problem? The answer is clear. People feel a problem about prayer because of the muddle they are in about God. Packer goes on to assert that if you're uncertain of who God is, the role he plays in our lives, or even if he really exists, then you won't pray. A.W. Tozer underscores this when he wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So let me ask, what do you think about when you think of God? What comes to mind? I know for me, oftentimes, even now, after, you know, getting seminary education and doing all this work in discipleship, I still have these images to overcome. And they're not actually images to overcome, but they're images that are incomplete because God is more. But images like this, I think of him as creator, ruler, judge. These come quickly to mind for me. Also words like holy, sovereign, omnipotent, transcendent. These all come to mind. But, but what does Jesus tell us in this passage? Let's go back to the first couple verses. On the day when Jesus was praying in a certain place, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Jesus is directing us to call God Father. We take this for granted today because this is, this is sort of like that secondhand knowledge. We know that God is our Father, but we don't realize that in the first century, Jews didn't call God Father typically. There was some recorded instances, but they avoided calling God Father. This is like that passage where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and you drink my blood, that was such a shocking thing. This was in that realm. may not have been shocking, but it had been maybe you know, a little bit odd. And it's actually one of the reasons why the Pharisees weren't really happy with, with Jesus, because he was calling God Father. Well, the notion that God is our Father was so important to George MacDonald, and George MacDonald is the guy that um, C.S. Lewis said had the most impact on him and helped baptize his imagination. Well, George MacDonald taught that fatherhood was at the very core of the universe, and it literally shaped his ministry and theology. And it permeates Jesus' teachings as well. This isn't just a George MacDonald thing. Jesus spoke of God as his Father over 170 times in the New Testament. And almost always, almost always use the word Abba, which is a more intimate interpretation or reference to God as Father. It's often interpreted as Daddy. There's some debate about actually whether it means Daddy. Uh, but that said, it's a more intimate way. It's like, you know, it's like saying Father or a Dad instead of Father. Okay? And it's this intimacy with a Father that has, that has existed eternally. It pre-exists our very universe. J.I. Packer writes this. He says, before the creation, God, who is both singular and plural, unique and triune, solitary and social, existed and rejoiced in love, the love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, love in which the Holy Spirit was and is somehow agent, issuer, and sharer all in one. Jesus enjoyed perfect intimacy with the Father from before time, and this intimacy is what rests at the core of the universe. As one commentator puts it, if we don't learn to say Father, 
then we can't really pray. This intimacy of God as our Father has tremendous implications for our prayer, and it's, this is how we will persevere in prayer. So let's take a quick look at what it means to call God our Father. We are children of God, that is, sons and daughters of the Most High. We are heirs with Christ in his kingdom. We are co-rulers with Christ. We'll even judge angels, Paul's write, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We have direct access to God in Christ. We don't have to go through the temple system anymore. We can go directly to God in prayer. Paul writes in Romans 8, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided with him, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He writes in Galatians chapter 4, but when we set the time, <clears throat> but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Now there's a lot of theology packed in here. We could dissect just those passages from Paul alone, much less this passage from Luke. Yet, this concept of God as Father has become so familiar in the church, we cruise right past it. But let's pause for a moment and consider what a privilege this is. Sociologist and, and social commentator Oz Guinness, some of you may have heard of him, he once said that contrast is the mother of clarity. So to more fully appreciate this, we, we should consider the false teaching of the universal fatherhood of God in order to understand this doctrine that we have. See, it's become commonplace to claim that we're all God's children these days. But if you read scripture, that's simply not true. John 1, 12 to 13 states, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. To follow this up, Jesus emphatically stated, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. Now this means those who have not received him and those who have not believed this specific claim that he's the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the exclusive Lord and Savior, do not have God as their Father. Going back to Packer, he wrote, prayer to God as Father is for Christians only. Only those who look to Jesus as mediator and sin-bearer and go to God through him have any right to call on God as his sons. So let's unpack this in less theological terms. Consider this, this privilege. Who would dare wake up the king in the middle of the night for a glass of water? Not as prime ministers, maybe not even the queen, if you read about some of the, the old versions of the, of the king. Only a child could wake the king up in the middle of the night for a glass of water and not incur his wrath. 
And how does a child ask for things? She asks with boldness, excitement, and without shame. Consider, can I have a pony for my birthday? Or, or something, maybe it's an Xbox or something. And the child asks with great expectancy. Who hasn't gone to great lengths to explain why the pony won't fit into your condo? I'm sorry, honey, there's just no space, or we don't have... Anyways. Children also ask incessantly, right? They ask over and over and over, and they just don't take no for an answer. Finally, children bargain. If I I'm, if I'm eat all my carrots, can I have ice cream for dessert? Didn't Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 18 that we are to become as little children? I submit to you that this is the key to persevering in prayer. We must come to him as little children. So let me ask, are you asking like a child when you pray? Do you ask with unabashed expectation? And what do you actually ask God for? Are you specific when you pray? If you're like me, and I find this being a cycle in my own life, I tend towards general, mildly ambiguous prayer requests, and I keep them realistic and sort of let God off the hook in case nothing happens. And what I'm really doing is setting my expectations low. But as my friend Stuart McAlpine states, when you ask of someone, what you ask of someone relates directly to the level of intimacy with him. So you would ask your father for anything, wouldn't you? Why don't we do that with God? You would ask your father for the moon. When you were a kid and you wanted something, you weren't afraid to ask for it. So if God is your father, and let me stress, your perfect father, then you can ask him for anything, according to John chapter 14. Abraham boldly bargained with God for Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in Genesis 18. The prophet Elijah, James says, was a man just like us, yet his prayers held back the rain for years. Finally, Peter was freed from prison by the constant prayers of the church. We find that in Acts 12. I stress perfect here because I want, I'm envisioning God as our father. I, I know that envisioning God as our father can be hard because so many of us carry father wounds. Some very traumatic father wounds. Some don't even have the father wound because their father was absent. That is one of the, the main ways the enemy, Satan, has attacked the family. We have, this, we have this father problem. So this is something we must overcome. I don't think I could follow this rabbit trail today, and I think it would take real pastoral and clinical counseling to help wrestle with some serious father wounds, but I want to recognize that and, and implore you that if this is you, pray through that, get help, so that you, this is not one of those obstacles to faith and to your prayers. The rest of this passage, the next section, um, which is commonly called the Lord's Prayer, is built out from God as our Father. It rests on this concept that God is our Father, and He is teaching us how to pray to God as our Father and what to ask for. Because you know as a child with these outlandish requests, we have to box it in. No, you can't have a pony for Christmas, but how about this? 
Each one of these petitions assumes God's fatherly love, and the prayer as a whole serves as a pattern for our prayers, progressing from God-centered petitions and concludes with man-centered petitions. And there's been so much written on these verses by pastors and theologians that I'm not going to add much new here this morning other than to say, pray this pattern of prayer as a child of God boldly and with great expectancy. And to remind you that when the prodigal son returned to his father, he had rehearsed his whole speech of contrition. He had it laid out. He said, I will go to my father and, and practice out his speech. But when he was a long way off, the father saw him and ran to him. And before the son could get the whole thing out, the father threw himself on him, hugged him and kissed him and brought him in. That is how we should go to our Father in prayer. Go to him as a child and recognize that he's waiting for us to come to him. How would a good father not be excited when a child comes to speak to him? I sometimes remind myself of this when I'm approaching God in prayer, that he's just waiting to hear from me. This is something that I, I, prayer is one of those, I call it sort of a perishable skill. You, I, there's times where I feel like I've got it and I've licked this thing, and then over time I fall prey to some sort of rut or pattern in prayer and I have to, to sort of disturb and break up my pattern, disrupt it. And this is one of the things I come to and remind myself because I keep going back to those images of God as sovereign and transcendent and holy and all of these things that he's unapproachable, but he's also imminent and loving and caring and he's our father. And he's not just sitting on the throne waiting to scold me, he's crouching down. He's a God who condescends and reaches down to us and he's waiting for us to come to his, into his arms. But wait, there's more. Luke records after this passage of the Lord's Prayer, these, these examples, knock, seek, act, the neighbor that comes to, uh, to his, uh, his neighbor at night, the man in need. And these, these, again, are overly familiar passages. And when we read them, we, see, we read these as keys to persevering in, via persistence. And I want to slightly challenge that. I'm not saying that you should not be persistent in prayers, but there's more to this passage than just persisting in prayer and being like the, the widow who continually badged the judge. Let's read that again. And he said to them, which of you who has had a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer him from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That's the part I want to zoom in on, verse 8, that word impudence. And here I'm indebted again to my friend Stuart McAlpine, who wrote a phenomenal book, and I, want, I think you should all put it on your list, it's called Just Asking by Westbow Press. It's a phenomenal examination of prayer, much more than you get here this morning. But in this book, Stuart pulls from the scholarship of men like Ken Bailey and D.A. Carson and unpacks what has been off-misinterpreted passage here. Now, it's important to note that culturally here in the first century, hospitality was a given. One did not fail to show hospitality. It was just, it was taboo not to do so. In fact, in fact, hosts often overdid the hospitality. They almost tried to trump one another on hospitality and, and just lavish it because what they did not want to do is they did not want to lose face, they did not want to lose reputation. So this passage is often read to stress that it was the persistence of the man in need 
that compelled the neighbor to get up. But the question, the word in question here, that word impudence, is unidea. I'm not that great with the Greek, so I might be a little bit off on that. But unidea, and it can be pronounced, or it can be translated in one of two ways. One is a positive and one is a negative. The positive is more in impudence, or some translations are sort of like shameless persistence. And, and the other translation is just, it's shameless. Other translations kind of look at it as boldness or persistence. And I, I won't bore you with the textual details because I, I promise you this week I really nerded out on this section and there was a lot to it. And I thought, oh, they're going to get bored with this. But the pronouns all in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, keeps referring to the neighbor that was woken up, the sleepy neighbor, the guy who was roused. And so the scholars make, a, make the argument that it's inconsistent for now this noun to, sh- to be shifted back to the needy neighbor. And this unidea does not refer to him, but the sleepy neighbor, meaning that it wasn't the neighbor asking for things, that was, it was his impudence. It was the shamelessness of the neighbor being woken up. This, this dramatically shifts the... the, the the onus uh, of, of, of prayer in this case, because this is an analogy for prayer, from the person in need to the person giving. What this means, this sense of shamelessness, is that the person being approached will always, it, it's, it's shameless that and not that he has no shame, but that he is shameless. He is filled with virtue. He will always do what is right. And the needy neighbor who approaches the, the, the neighbor for bread is doing so because he knows, based on these cultural assumptions, that it is wrong, it is bad, um, bad manners not to provide somebody in need, that the neighbor will provide because this neighbor of his is a man of great reputation, a man who has no shame, a man who's filled with virtue, a man who will always do what is right. That's why he feels good going to him in the middle of the night and asking for loaves of bread. That's how we, that's the model Jesus is giving here, is that we are to approach God because we know God is is shameless, filled with virtue. He will always do what's right for us. And that's what the rest of the passage pans out there. You know, we may be asking, we don't know what, we may be asking for scorpions. He's not going to give us scorpions. He's the good neighbor. This shifts the, the, the narrative dramatically and places the emphasis on the neighbor who was woken up, who clearly represents God, while the man in need represents us in prayer. And as Stuart McAlpine says, there's nothing like need, nothing like adversity to drive us to prayer, right? Who knows the last time this neighbor went and talked to the guy next door? Now he has need to do so. We can rest assured that God will hear and answer our prayer because that's who he is. It's not because of anything we've done, we've done. Now, should we be persistent in prayer? Yes, but it's not our persistence that wins the day. It is God's goodness. And I don't know about you, but this takes a huge burden off my shoulders because one of the reasons I can't persevere in prayer is I'm trying to find the right techniques, the right words, the right approach, the right time of day. It doesn't matter. God is reliable. He is shameless. He is unidea. 
And just like the child who can awaken the king in the middle of the night for the glass of water, we can come to God at any time of day for three loaves or whatever it is we need. We can ask, we can seek, and knock, and we'll receive, we'll find, and have it opened unto us. This is how we can bolster our efforts to persevere in prayer and deepen our intimacy with God. Remember, it's our intimacy, our requests, our prayers betray, they expose our level of intimacy. So I'd like to, I'll close with this passage from C.S. Lewis because I'm from the C.S. Lewis Institute and I'm contractually obligated to quote him at least once every time. If in the end you struggle to persevere with prayer, consider these words from uh, his essay, The Efficacy of Prayer. Prayer is either sheer illusion or a personal contact with em- between embryonic incomplete persons, us, and the utterly concrete person. Prayer is the sense of petition, asking for things. <clears throat> Prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are its threshold. Adoration, its sanctuary. The presence and vision and enjoyment of God, its bread and wine. In it, God shows himself to us. That he answers prayer is a corollary, not necessarily the most important one from that revelation, but what he does is learned from what he is. And to that quote, I would just add and remind you that he is our father. So as you go back into prayer and you try to persevere in prayer, go back to him like the child waking up their father in the middle of the night. Forget any images you have of your father if they're imperfect or even traumatic because God is the good father, the father that we can turn to. He's our true father. Let me close with a prayer from George MacDonald. O Christ, our lives possess us utterly. Take us and make little Christs of us. If we are anything but our fathers, sons, and daughters, to something not yet from the darkness won, give us light to live with open eyes. O give us life to hope above all skies. Amen.